Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, my name is Rachel Stewart, and this is another presentation for the Sex, Sex Work and Sexualities special series. I'm here today with Christian Grove and John Scott, who are going to talk to us about their book about male sex work. So can you tell us um, who you are, why this book, and why now? I'll start with just introducing myself. So uh, I'm Christian Grove. I'm a professor in the Department of Community Health and Social Sciences at the CUNY School of Public Health in New York City. And I'm John Scott. I'm at the Queensland University of Technology, uh, which is based in Brisbane in Queensland in Australia. And our colleague, who uh, can't be with us this morning, Victor Minichello, is, um, is well, he's, he's, he's supposed to be retired, but he, he keeps himself very busy. And um, he's an adjunct with... Uh, the Queensland University of Technology and a couple of other institutions, and um, and he's also based over here in, in, in Australia. So, can you tell us um, why this book? You know, what what sort of what brought about the book, and why now? Um, yeah, look, it was started as a bit of a follow up to an earlier book that we did, Male Sex Work in Society. Um, so, so initially, uh, that was that earlier book was with a publisher, a small boutique type publisher called Harrington Park Press. And um, and we'd worked with Christian before on on, on with that book. Uh, Christian uh, did a, did chapters for it, and uh, we were approached again by the publisher to do a follow up because the first uh, version had been quite successful. That was back in 2014. Seemed like a good time to do a bit of an update, um, given so much had changed since 2014 around sex work internationally, and um, and there was still a lot of relevant things we thought we had to talk about. You know, particularly issues um, around the legality of sex work and so on. But um, also let Christian give his take as well. I was really excited when um, uh, Victor and John approached me. As as, um, as John mentioned, I, I had contributed a chapter to the prior um, volume, and so the idea of you know being one of the editors on the new book. Um, really excited me and um, you know we sort of thought about it well it's been about five it'll be about five years before the next one comes out now we're you know closer to seven years um, but that's that's publishing for you um, you know being like well a half decade has gone by you know what could we say that would be new and different and what's the kind of feedback that we re- that they received on the first version and I think I mean you can talk about some of the feedback you received like I think there was a greater call for some um, areas of the globe that were underrepresented in the first book that we made a much more concerted effort to include in this one. And I also think, um, you know, the goal was to expand into other topics. So it's not just what is sex work like in Europe? What is sex work like in the UK? What is sex work like in Latin America? But also things like how was sex work represented in film, um, for instance, you know, over time? And John, I'll let you jump in, I think maybe with the other, you know, like really significant changes that this new volume or this new book entirely, it's not a volume at this point, um, addresses that the first book that came out in 2014 didn't. Yes, um, it's, 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 it's a larger book, I can say that. So uh, we've, we've got, you know, all up about 40 chapters in this one. So it's, it's quite large. 
one of the things that we really wanted to do, uh, a lot, lot of the work, it's a bit like um, uh, female sex work, a lot of the work around male sex work is being very epidemiological in scope. So it's, um, it has been, um, you, you mentioned earlier, Rachel, about you know, another conversation about condoms. We're trying to move the conversation slightly away from condoms. There's a little bit, bit of, about condoms in there. I'm sure there's lots of mentions of condoms throughout the book. But, um, but one of the things we wanted to look at was the sort of uh, cultural historical aspects of sex, sex work as well. You know, the humanity side of, um, you know, what, what scholars have been doing around sex work, not just the social sciences, but we're inclusive of the social sciences. Yes, we wanted to go more global in scope. Um, and, and so we've included, you know, I, I mean, male sex work, the research is sort of bursting out all over the world at the moment, you know, and there's so much coming from so many different parts of the world and so many different countries. In the past, it was very uh, British, North American focused the research, uh, at least the English speaking research. And, and if you look today, you know, it's, it's this uh, research coming out of uh, many, many countries and we wanted to capture all that, those uh, diverse, rich voices um, around the male sex industry. Yeah, that's, that's one of the things that I really enjoyed about the book because um, it felt like a kind of almost like a reset to before the debate around trafficking hijacked sex work. And that's, I really enjoyed that kind, of, um, that kind of cultural studies, use of the image, historical sort of input that I thought, you know, really gave context in ways that you wouldn't necessarily be looking for. I really enjoyed that. So um, can you talk us through the phrase that you borrow from Weitzer, from Ronald Weitzer, the polymorphous paradigm and what it means to you in the context of this book? <laughs> um, look, I, 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 I think, you know, the, the polymorphous paradigm, I, I mean, once again, you know, one of, the, one of the ideas of the book was to capture the diversity of voices. Um, around sex work. I think there's a tendency with us academics, you know, just in, in the scope, especially our social sciences, uh, scientists to narrow everything down into types and to, you know, if you like, you know, ideal types around things or to typologies. And um, and, and you're not going to find a lot of typologising in, in this book, you know. Um, uh, you know, once once again, we've really tried to capture the, the cultural global diversity of um, sex work and something that I should have mentioned before I didn't mention one of the criticisms that we copped um, in in the earlier volume was that we we, we didn't include enough voices of um, sex workers themselves you know sort of current you know sex workers and and we've, we've tried to do that in this book um, we our, our I guess our plans were a little bit grander in terms of the design of the book we wanted to have a lot of a lot more sex workers um, included in the book, but um, that proved difficult for all sorts of reasons in actually, you know, uh, in, the, in terms of creating the book. Um, but we did manage to do that um, in, in, a, in a bigger way than we did previously. So, you know, sort of addressing that point of nothing about us without us and, and, and we thought that was, was important as well. You know, particularly when it does come to the, you know, the sort of the more current sort of, you know, sort of epidemiological work and that. Um, so, so, again, you know, we wanted to capture that, that diversity that's, that's, that's out there. Um, in terms of our authorship as well. And John, I think, you know, uh, you, you reminded me of, you know, one of the chapters that I'm so excited that we were able to include was that on trans male sex workers, you know, written by a, you know, trans male activist and who also, you know, bears the title of researcher as well. And I think that's the, the challenge that you face is, you know, finding the intersection between, you know, um, academic prose and then, you know, activists in the field. But I, you know, there is not a lot written about trans male sex workers, but we've got a whole chapter on it in our book, um, which I'm thrilled about, so. 
no, no, it's, it's good. I liked as well this sort of um, the way that you describe in the introduction, the sort of like suggests that people don't think about industry, but think about the sort of diverse communities. So to think about sex work in terms of a, you know a, a wide variety of sort of um, communities, and I wondered sort of what what are communities that the book covers in terms of you know male sex work. Yeah, well, the the community idea was that um, I, I guess you know again going back to that idea about nothing about us without us. Uh, I, I guess that community it, it begins with both the sex workers and their clients, you know, and soft, soft and clients have you know they've been pathologized a bit recently, especially with the politics around sex work. You know, and so once again, we've got people writing from all sorts of perspectives. You know, we've got the you know the the, the historic and contemporary voices of clients captured in the book as well. So so they they're not a group that we're necessarily ignoring here, and and we realise that they're important to that whole exchange as well. And um and yeah, yes, once again, they're being pathologised, they're being politicised. You know, in 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 this whole in these debates around sex work. So we we want to hear from them um, and, and hear their voices in this book. So so you know they they're your basic communities, but I think you'll find that the the, the book uh, captures a, a lot of communities, you know, global communities, um, uh, and so on. Do you want to add to that, Christian? I don't. I don't have anything to add. Sorry. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> okay that's cool. That's cool. It's, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because like we don't hear anything from the customers. I mean, you know, the industry won't run with. I've used the word industry won't use uh, run without them, but. We don't talk about them, and then you know they're 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 sort of absent, you know, present but absent. But I think as well the whole idea of like this diverse community, thinking of sex work in terms of diverse communities, really allows us to get away from that notion of an industry and start thinking more in terms of like sexual commerce rather than like an industrial uh, sort of um, institution. So oh, absolutely. Yeah, and, and just I just I just put on on the um, the matter of clients too. You know, when when you look at male sex work historically, um, it, it has been the clients who have been um, you know pathologised quite quite a bit more so than when you're looking at female sex work. So you know, if you go back to the earliest research around male sex work, clients were typically characterised as being you know in inverted commas homosexual. Um, and 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 they were seen to be highly problematic. You know, they were the ones that were being criminalised. They were the ones that were being policed. And and the sex workers, you know, in the in, in the in the earliest uh, days uh, of the research, they were typically you know characterised as being victims. You know, people who needed some kind of welfare oriented help. You know, so I mean, you know, they they were they were copying it in a different way, being pathologised in a different way. So the dynamics around male sex workers is quite a contrast with. Uh, female sex work because we know you know historically that the clients of female sex workers while being somewhat pathologized um have, haven't been to the extent that they have been you know with uh, male sex work and often the clients have been ignored entirely and to you know sort of build off of the ways in which male clients were pathologized it's you know it was really um as predators you know on on vulnerable um uh you know younger men who you know who uh, uh, given their financial circumstances are being taken advantage of for the purpose, you know, of exchanging sex or, or uh, you know, um, uh, converting more people to being gay, you know, through sex work. So I'm very fortunate that we've moved beyond narratives like that, at least. Yeah, <laughs> it's quite interesting because in the study of sex work, like female sex work, what I've noticed is this total fetishization of the actual kind of um, 
the the sex part of the sex worker's life okay so you know that all the focus is on the actual sex work of a sex worker's life and it's almost like they don't exist outside that sort of like uh, relationship with the customer but there's no discussion about the customer other than you know a source of potential danger you know and consequently we've got this whole new raft of like nordic model legislation to protect protect the sex worker from from the customer, which hasn't, you know, from a recent study that I've done with the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, it's not actually translated into the, um, into the the kind of like the policing of sex workers. It's still sex, the, you know, female sex workers being arrested much more than their male, than their male customers. So, um, but can you tell us how the book discusses the affordances of the web that uh, the, the web has had for male sex workers? Has, has can you repeat that? Sorry. So can you can you discuss for us how the internet has impacted male sex work? Yeah, look, I, I, I think it's a bit like, um, it's a little bit, it's not so dissimilar from uh, female sex work in the sense that uh, the internet's really expanded, I, I guess, uh, the visibility of the industry, um, in some ways the scope of the industry. Um, Sometimes I use the term of the McDonaldization, you know, sort of, of of the sex industry, and then I think the web's aided that in some ways, and and it has, and it is, and that's is connected to that notion of the, the polymorphous and so on, and just the range of sex work that's available. You know, once again, if I think back to the early studies of sex work, it's typically the, the clients characterised as an older homosexual male, and the and the yeah you know, the the sex worker is somebody who's very young. And, and, and vulnerable, you know, but if you go online, you know, <laughs> you see that, you know, there's, there's a, that, that things are much, much, there's much more diversity and richness out there. So there's a guy that, um, you know, I spoke to recently, um, who works in Brisbane and he, and he's, uh, almost 50. Um, he's, he's, he's very gray, you know, he's characterized as a bit of a silver Fox out there. And, and he has a particular group of clients and he tells me that, he, um, he often feels uncomfortable sometimes because he gets a lot of young clients who want him to be this sort of daddy type and, you know, and they want to be, you know, sort of disciplined or whatever, you know, and, and, and he feels that he's, you know, often sometimes, you know, unfairly pressured by his clients to play into a particular role. And he's, and he's very much in demand. He's making a reasonable living off what, what he does. Um, and, and, but it just sort of shows you that there's, there's a lot more out there. There's a lot of diversity out there uh, in the sex industry that the internet has made visible. And there's been a shift, you know, from, um, I, I guess, uh, forms of work, whether it's parlour work uh, or, or street work, um, which was not uncommon with male sex work in the past, more to online type work, so escorting online. So I think that's been a big, big shift that's happened over the last 10 years or so. But I'll let Christian add to that perhaps. Yeah, and, you know, I think it comes up in multiple multiple chapters in the book, um, uh, you know, sort of the Sosta and, and Festa, um, uh, uh, Fosta and Sesta, sorry, um, and the shutdown of Rentboy, which, you know, it wasn't the most glamorous um, website compared to some of its more modern competitors, but that website had been around since the 90s. And a couple of years ago, the Department of Homeland Security um, which, why are they involved with um, sex work, raided Rent Boys offices, which were just down the street from me. I, you know, visited uh, numerous times. They operated on the second floor of a, you know, storefront building, you know, with all of their staff. Um, they sponsored um, a float at Pride every single year. They had like a very, you know, visible presence and like every, you know, like uh, they would go into bars and hand out t-shirts. And it's like, it was very much a normalized thing for the government to all of a sudden step in and shut them down. Um, 
uh, I'm sorry, I, I, I know it's, it, it comes up a lot in the book because uh, it was one of those, it, it's, uh, it struck people so strange that this industry that has moved to being online, and dare I would say there are so many benefits to the industry being online in terms of for escorts to have a paperwork trail or, you know, chat trail with their clients compared to getting in someone's car on a street corner, um, you know, to uh, uh, clients being able to read reviews that have been written by other clients of their escorts to come in and have, um, you know, shut this down under very, you know, odd, odd circumstances. So, you know, the internet has done so much and yet there's been, you know, uh, and with Rent Boy going down, other, um, websites, you know, sort of fell with it. There was Hook U, and, and uh, John, I don't know if you were familiar with Hook University. No, not no. at all. Hook U was an initiative to um, connect uh, escorts together for like, how do we become better escorts? So they offered a series of workshops to anyone that's interested in attending them for things like setting up your profile, screening your clients what to do with the income, how do you file your taxes when you don't have a job, um, you know, and, 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 and you know, what, what are, what are uh, acceptable deductions and unacceptable deductions from your taxes? And of course, like things like, how do you exit the industry? You know, how do you know when the time is right for you? And how do you exit the industry and, and parlor the skills that you attained while being an escort onto a resume to get a job, you know, somewhere else? So, sorry, a bit of a bit of a side thing on there, but you know, I think that's some of the shifts that we've seen um, in the internet as well. And I think other things that have changed so much in sex, which has bled into sex work, is um, you know, when the 2014 book came out, prep was barely a, you know sort of a thing that exists. Now here we are; it's 2021. It's you know almost a decade that we've had prep in existence. It's really reframed sex, and it's reframed as a result. I think sex work. Um, as well. So you see that represented in the book too. It's no longer about condoms. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I've, like, you know, I mentioned earlier when I was involved with the research of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and we interviewed, like, sort of uh, across London, you know, a lot of different sex workers. And what we found is that the male sex workers tended to use apps a lot more than, than women. In fact, women weren't using apps at all, whereas the male sex workers were using all different types of apps apps to sort of like meet each other they were kind of almost they'd already sort of swerved this this um this uh this sort of block that had been put on you know uh, by foster sister you know they'd already kind of like started to negotiate in fact they were working quite markedly different ways to female sex workers so in your book what what how do you you know how does male sex work you know sort of differ from female sex work would you say can I jump in first on this one, John? So I think oh. one thing that, 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 you know, happens with male sex work that doesn't happen with female sex work is that male sex work, male sex workers are in the same hookup apps that other gay and bisexual men are using to meet up. So it's almost expected and, you know, some extent accepted that, um, in the space that you're trying to meet people, you're also going to encounter people that might be looking to buy or sell. And that's completely, you know, acceptable. I don't know to what extent female sex workers are on OkCupid and Tinder. I'm going anecdotally, but I, you know, I sort of imagine in a, you know, or Christian Mingle, they're probably not on there either. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's, whereas, you know, with, with apps, it's like, it's sort of hand in hand that, you know, that, that, those individuals exist in this environment. And, uh, you know, as long as 
some if if, you, if there's no harassment going on one way or the other, it's you know even though it might be against the terms of service, you're probably not going to be turned in by the user base for doing it. If that makes sense. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, um, and, and look, and I think the other thing too is that um, I guess the male sex work is is scaffolded, if you like, by um, other types of communities. So, so these external communities. So, so, so you know, it, it, it might be uh, sub subgroups within you know the wider you know queer culture um, that you know facilitates some of this, and that seems to be what Christian's inferring to there as well. So, um, so. Yeah, I, I think that um, there's there tends to be a, a lot more, and and you know, and I don't mean this in a negative way about female sex work, but male sex workers tend to be in inverted commas, you know, relatively more independent in how they operate and how they work, and that's been observed in quite a lot of the research. So um, although you know I've, I've mentioned this sort of community link, this seems to be a strong sort of um, sort of independence. You know, they don't often contact other male sex workers or talk to other male sex workers. They're less inclined to get involved in online chats among male sex workers, for for example, um, uh, swap advice with each other. Although in Australia, in in the country I'm based in. Um, there are, um, Christian mentioned Hook University before, there are groups here, advocacy groups in Australia that are often sponsored by the state or partially funded by the state who will go out and do sort of similar type training, offer similar types of advice, workshops, things, work in advocacy uh, for female and male sex workers. And often male sex workers are represented by those groups, not, not to the same extent that female sex workers are, but those groups, um, the, the, my local one in Queensland is called Respect Inc. And um, you can look them up online and you'll find them. And um, there's, there's a couple of guys that uh, work with Respect Inc. And Respect Inc. at the moment, they're out there um, advocating for the decriminalisation of sex work in this state. But they do also offer uh, workshops and other things for male sex workers, um, which I understand um, are, are taken up occasionally by the men. It's quite interesting that you mentioned that that male sex work seems to be the the, the sort of like the there's a bit of a porous sort of barrier between sex work and socialization and that lack of kind of uh, more sort of um, more identifiable sort of like sex work support and I want I wonder what you think if that's a consequence of the lack of like sort of feminist um, sort of uh, uh, campaigning against uh, uh, sort of like female sex work hasn't happened with male sex work so it's almost like sort of male sex workers haven't been sort of like removed from the society in the same way as as female sex work has been as a consequence of like all this feminist you know sort of radical feminist sort of um campaigning against sex work there just hasn't been that level of campaigning has there so i, I would agree with that statement I, I i would also throw out there i don't i don't know how to what extent this is very well represented in the book, only because it's 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 so new and emerging. But in terms of like you know where are we headed um, with all of this, you, you know, um, uh, there often was a pathway between appearing in adult films and then becoming a sex worker. You know, appearing in the film once is going to get you a few hundred dollars, but then when you can advertise yourself as having appeared in the film, you know, that's where you can really rake in the money. And these days, you know, we're seeing the emergence of I'll call it the uberfication of um, of sex work, um, of you know people setting up their OnlyFans page and you know just for fans, and then cross using Twitter as a social platform to promote you know them 
both as a, you know, watch me have sex and pay a monthly subscription for that, but also potentially as a, and for a certain price, you can hire me, you know, for this or pay me to perform various acts. And, and I, uh, I'll speak anecdotally at this point, but it feels like everyone has an OnlyFans page these days. It's like LinkedIn for gay people, um, which, which, which I think is wonderful. It's, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, you know I, I find it very sex positive and I'm, I'm glad that everyone's doing it. I almost feel left out because I was like, God, I feel like, you know, this, everyone has to have one of these these days. A little off topic, but I, I really think that, that as we talk about the normalization um, of, of sex work, you know, it's, it's sort of almost expected if you're sharing your Twitter handle, you're probably going to have X-rated content on it um, unless you're doing it, you know, for pure professional reasons. Yeah, I mean, the only people that seem to use Twitter as sex workers and academics, and it's a perfect meeting place. Um, but do you think as well, there's, um, like, when I did my research with webcam performers, what I found is that there was this real kind of crossover where people would do porn as a sort of loss leader that kind of advertised their, their webcam sort of presence. And the webcam presence actually did boost their porn career, although they weren't making significant money off their porn. Um, have you seen that type of crossover with male sex workers at all? Oh, yeah, I think it's fairly common. Yeah, yeah. But I was, I was going to say before, Christian, you know, it's, it's hard, hard being an academic. I think I don't think we can do OnlyFans. I mean, at least here in Australia, it'd be quite scandalous. I mean, doing, doing interviews on your book is about the closest thing we get to that kind of um, celebrity. <laughs> <laughs> which 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 you know which is fortunate you know you'll, you'll be know you know that we that we get to do that stuff fully clothed and there's no no physical requirements of us whatsoever around anything thank so. goodness thank goodness <laughs> so um we sort of mentioned the nordic model sort of briefly earlier on can you describe the impact that the nordic model is having on male sex work can you say that again sorry so we sort of mentioned earlier on the uh, Nordic model. I wonder if you could describe the impact that the Nordic model of uh, legislation is having on male sex work. Uh, look, I, I think it's often um, you know, male sex work uh, is, is caught up with female sex work in one way or another. And the, you know, the legislation that operates in any jurisdiction um, does, does often you know, include male sex workers as well as female sex workers. So if it's um, illegal in, in places, it's going to mean that, you know, male sex work is illegal. Male sex work does have the, uh, the, the, the additional issue that in some places where same-sex uh, desire contact is uh, criminalised, you've got that added uh, layer of, of, of criminal law around it. But um, I, I guess that... There's been less. There's been less uh, incentive to go out and prosecute male sex workers, especially now that you know much of it's online. There are a lot of escorts. I know Christian mentioned earlier uh, the issue around Rent Boy, and that was you know that was a, a, a big case. But it, it wasn't. It was less prosecuting the male sex works sex workers rather than the platforms from where where they operated. Um, and 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 I think you know. Uh, the people operating those platforms um, do have to navigate the law and navigate it very, very carefully in their respective jurisdictions. But in, in a place uh, like Australia, there isn't a lot of prosecutions of male sex workers, so it tends to be fairly rare. Um, additionally, you know, I don't think there's a lot happening around female sex work, so the Nordic model hasn't had a lot of impact here, and this is where Christian's going to come in and perhaps talk about the North, North American experience. But, um, you know, People may not be aware that uh, in Australia we've got a, a number of states 
and uh, the sex industry was decriminalised in New South Wales, which was the first state anywhere in the world to decriminalise the sex industry, the first jurisdiction. And, um, and, and that means that police don't actually uh, run sex work. You know, they don't have anything to do with sex work. The sex industry is treated like a regular business. And, and you know, that's great. And um, that was way back in 1995. And they've had inquiries around decriminalisation since, and they show that the health of sex workers is better, their safety is better, the safety of clients is better. Um, you know, so it's had, it's, you know, by any measure, it's, it's a bit like climate science, by any measure, it's, it's shown that decriminalisation is true, it's effective, it works, you know. You can do all these studies on it and they keep coming up with the same thing, that it's been very effective. Does that mean that it gets adopted? Does it mean that it gets taken up everywhere else? No, it doesn't, of course not. So, so the only, only other places in the world, I think, are, uh, is a territory of Australia where it's decriminalised and then there's the, the, the nation of New Zealand where it's decriminalised and similarly... Um, in those places, um, the, the benefits of decriminalisation have been found to be very positive, very effective. So, so it's it's interesting. So, in the Antipodes down here, uh, that the whole the Nordic sort of debate has had you know relatively um, much less impact than it has in the Northern Hemisphere. So, and that's probably a good cue for Christian to talk about the the, the American experience. It's a mess here. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, uh, we. Uh, as, as, as our listeners at home probably know, you know, there are some places in the United States where, you know, sex work is permitted and completely regulated. And, and you, I was, while you were talking, I was just Googling on my phone because there's been a lot of chatter about what's going on in New York specifically, where there finally is some momentum to, um, you know, to do more to protect sex workers and to, you know, legalize or otherwise decriminalize the industry. But we remain so far behind um, you know, uh, other other countries from the Nordic model, you know, for instance. And um, if, if you've paid attention to any politics in the United States, things are a little messy here and take a long, you know, time. And it seems like much of the initiative is often coming at the state level and the local municipality level, as opposed to Congress, you know, being able to act, you know, to pass something. And if anything, they're... Um, they're, you know, they're passing things to make it more difficult rather than, you know, to, to, to um, make things better for sex workers. So we'll see. And, you know, I say, as, and I'll use the example of marijuana um, legalization and decriminalization, which is very, it's happened with same-sex marriage too, is you had a couple of states, you know, in which it, you know, became legal. And then all of a sudden other states are jumping on board. So, you know, uh, perhaps if New York does take more bold moves to, you know, decriminalize or legalize sex work, we'll start to see other states adopt that um, model as well, um, in, in, in spite of, you know, um, the federal level being able to act in such a way that would, that would decriminalize. I, would, I have no faith that Congress um, would take action to do it, but I do have faith that, you know, certain states, uh, you know, would, would make bold moves and then neighboring states would, would uh, adopt the model once they see that the world didn't end when we allowed sex work to happen. Yeah, it's quite, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because like the whole sort of Nordic model debate is really coming on, a, on the coattails of the, the whole trafficking kind of yeah, moral panic. Um, that just doesn't seem to have happened around male sex work in the same way that it's been attached to female sex work. And um, I sort of, uh, I wanted, you know, like nobody really wants to get into a debate about trafficking because obviously that's just like totally sort of suffocated any debates about sex work since 2000 and the well-known Paloma Protocol. Let's not go there yet. But it's it's kind of like, it's interesting that 
that hasn't been attached at all to like male sex work. I mean, the, the whole trafficking. I mean, is there literature out there about trafficking and male sex work? I don't think so. I've not read it. There's 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 little little bits and pieces that you can find, but look, there's not a detailed literature, and and I think one of the reasons for that is the moral entrepreneurs haven't been out there sort of advocating that we need to sort of you know know more about you know the the, the instances of male male sex trafficking. Um, so so there's been there hasn't been that sort of advocacy around it uh, to the extent that there has been in regards to. Uh, to women and therefore you know there hasn't been the, the, the level of funding that you found everywhere else to look at you know sort of female uh related sex trafficking i mean something that i i try to hive off you know separate out is the fact that you know as the title of our book suggests we're looking at sex work and so we're calling it work and you know and it's it's something that we see as you know uh typically you know not always you know but it's like all work you know not always but you know mostly involving consenting rational adults yeah and um, you know who, who 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 have actually agency and have made a choice to engage in in, in that type of behaviour. That doesn't mean there's going to be instances in which there is exploitation and, and you know whatever else. But um, as we know from the New South Wales experience, where it's decriminalised, you know there are still laws criminalising you know laws that apply to any business, you know um, exploitative forms of behaviour, you know, and uh, and so so. That's something trafficking for me. Is something very, very different. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's about you know the, the the use of force and you know and exploitation. Yes, it should be criminalised, but you know that's not something I'm an expert on, and it's not something I feel that I can really comment on in any depth because what I'm interested in looking at is this thing called sex work, which is something entirely different. Yeah, and that's what I really enjoyed about the book is that the, the you've put aside these kind of like these done to death sort of debates around sort of victimization and trafficking and you've looked at, at sex work as, as a sort of multifaceted um, uh, social experience so there's you know I wondered if you could kind of like talk us through the different sections of the book and what you know what you, what areas you cover sure and why Christine. you chose those no I'll turn it over to you John <laughs> <laughs> yeah look um, uh, as, as mentioned earlier look one what we, we sort of start the book by um, we, we really tap into the humanities, you know. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, a lot, a lot of research around sex work has been social science oriented. And, you know, and it was becoming a little bit dry around the condom use, you know, and the sexual health kind of stuff and the, the head counting and, and everything else. So, you know, I think the first part of the book's re really fun because, you know, we, we, we look at fashion and, and male sex work, you know, like we, we look at the, the cinema, you know, we look at, you know, historical instances of male sex work. We, 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 we look at, um, you know... Uh, famous people from history and their, their historical diaries as clients, yeah, um, you know, uh, being involved with male sex workers, you know. So it's 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 um, it's, it's material that uh, you don't see um, a, a lot in in terms of you know just regular academic publications, journal publications. It often gets buried underneath all this sort of uh, all this measurement stuff, if you like. Um, and and so so it's this really rich qualitative uh, work that's being done, you know. And, and so we we take a very cultural uh, take on male sex work and try to shift it out of that sort of, I guess, that pathological type space. Um, in, in terms, uh, that doesn't mean that we throw out the social science stuff completely. So we have looked at, you know, the health of male sex workers, you know, physical, psychological and other parts of the book. Um, we, have, we have attempted to sort of, you know, enumerate aspects of male sex work globally. Um, so we've done a little bit of that. But I guess the other main part of the book is uh, dealing with uh, globalisation and, and just the diversity, you know, of masculinities, you know, and, 
And one of the big frameworks that uh, we've tapped into theoretically is all that uh, research has happened over the last 20, 30 years on masculinities. And, you know, so we're, we're, we're all our authors, we, we draw on that extensively throughout the book to try to frame the experience of um, these, these communities um, that exist around male sex work, you know, both the clients and the sex workers. And um, one of the things that we really do highlight is that um, because of these uh, varied global frameworks for masculinities, uh, the, the experience of male sex work all over the world is, can be quite distinct and quite different. And, and just the last point, you know, and I've, I've spoken a bit here, but I, um, one, one of my other side projects recently <clears throat> has been around a thing called, um, called Southern Criminology. So, and, you know, I've done, done a book on that recently and, um, and, and that book taps into Raywin Connell's uh, Southern Theory, you know, um, where, where Raywin talks about how, um, you know, the global north has basically used the global south as a bit of a data mine and, you know, go down research, put your frameworks over it as kind of blueprints to understand everything. So I guess one of the things that the book's trying to do is, uh, you know, break with that sort of tradition and, and capture these, these um, you know, if you like, southern, southern voices around male sex work um, and, and not frame those voices in, in a very sort of, I, I guess, you know, be it a social scientific way, um, be it a quantitative way, be it, um, a, if you like, a northern way, but uh, let, let them speak for themselves um, and, um, and, you know, develop their own uh, uh, understandings around the phenomenon that's occurring in those, those very countries that we look at. And I would just add, I, I think the, the geographical or, yeah, the geographical representation in this book, I think, is pretty darn awesome. You know, chapters on the United States, Canada, is it Brazil specifically, I believe, um, the Caribbean. We ended up getting a chapter on the Middle East, correct? I, I, um, you know, plus the, 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 a lot of what is known on sex work is based in um, Europe, Australia and the United States, you know, for the, for the most part, you know, and Canada. So I think the fact that we were able to um, include representation of regions that have really just been not part of the, the, the lexicon on, 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 or the canon on male sex work, I think um, uh, is, is a very strong appeal for this book. In addition to the fact that we're moving outside of the social sciences and you know, looking at sex work as it represented in film and literature um, you know, and historically, so. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. It, it, it helps to ba- break that kind of epistemic like exploitation thing, doesn't it? If you if you allow at least you know sort of like an inside of you to actually say what's going on where people live, but also as well, it allows you to broaden the what we consider to be sex work beyond you know that that direct paid for sex act. That I think we you know that in the global northwest we've got a very narrow view of what sex work actually involves. And I think, so. you know, this book enables the reader to kind of, you know, increase their understanding of what is involved in sex work. Yeah, yeah. And, and also, I guess, to go back to the, the Nordic model um, that you mentioned earlier, I, I guess it, 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 it discourages blanket essentialist type characterizations of, 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 the, uh, of, of, of sex work. So, so, so we're, we're trying to get away from that this idea that there's some model that's going to fit everything globally or there's some sort of framework 
for understanding, um, uh, you know, sex work or even sexual exploitation. That's just going to be this thing that you can throw over everything and understand it. Rather, what we're saying is that you've really got to get down to the cultural dynamics, you know, and, and you know, look, masculinity is important to understand, as, as I've already mentioned, you know, um, does masculinity involve power relationships? Yes, of course it does, you know, it's a, it obviously does, but, you know, but, but, but yeah, so we're not denying that power exists out there, that exploitation and so on exists out there, but, but what we're saying is that um, to get a better appreciation of the phenomenon, something like male sex work and its complexity, um, that you do need to drill down into specific cultural contexts. And, you know, and you can't just, you know, go out and, you know, apply this, you know, whatever it might be, Nordic model or anything else to everything. Okay. So, um, I was sort of like, when I've, I've focused in this presentation around the boy that you've actually written. So, uh, you know, I've kind of concentrated on your, your introduction, your conclusion. But you write a really interesting uh, chapter, chapter 16, about quantifying male sex work. And can you talk me through some of the issues that, that, that you, you would have naturally been confronted by trying to quantify something as unquantifiable as people sort of like engaged in sexual commerce? So that was a chapter that Victor led up the effort for. And he is the perfect person, I think, to answer that question more specifically. Um, John, I don't know if you have much to add other than oh, that. Oh, look, yeah, because I've had, <laughs> I've had discussions with Victor around these issues in the past. But, like, I mean, one, one, one of the things um, on, on that is that we are aware that, I mean, one, one of the, one of, look, there's various ways. It's a problem that we don't know how many male sex workers. I, I think there's a, there's a gap. As, as Victor will argue, you know, in, in terms of understanding, how can, how can you talk about a phenomenon if you can't say how many how many there are out there? You know, so theoretically, there could be no male sex workers in the world today. You know, I know that sounds stupid, but, you know, look, it could be possible. How do we know that they exist? How do we know how many are out there? And, and how do we know, um, I guess, regional geographic variability, how it operates? Um, does it, you know, is it the case that in a country where it's illegal, where homosexuality is illegal, do you have less male sex workers? So these things are important questions, you know, that we should have some sort of a, a grasp on, you know, if we're going to go out and advocate uh, for policy change around something like decriminalisation. So I think that's what Victor would probably say around this. And, and Victor and I have tried to quantify it in the past, and we've done this by looking at um, instances of advertising from escorts, internet escorts online. But, of course, the problem with this is, is that, you know, you can put up an ad to advertise your services, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're actually going to provide any service to, to anybody, you know, so you can advertise all you like, but you may not actually be providing any services. Does that matter? Are we interested just in how many people are out there, you know, trying to advertise, trying to sell sex, or are we interested in people who are actually selling it? Are we interested in people that are working, you know, selling sex for 10 hours a week, 40 hours, you know, 50 hours is a full day to be a full-time job, a, a casual job? We know, um, we, well, we, we think we know that, you know, a lot of male sex workers tend to work, you know, fairly casually, um, you know, so, uh, you know, so they won't often have it as a full-time job. Um, so the, the, the person, uh, my friend that I mentioned earlier who works um, in the industry in Brisbane, um, the, the mature guy, he uh, works full-time in, in another occupation, you know, so in a physical kind of labouring occupation, and he will just do this type of work. He might do it, you know, a few jobs a week, um, and and that's the extent of it. So it's it's a it's a very casual kind of thing for him. Does that mean he 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 counts as a male sex worker? Well, in my opinion, yes, he does. But you know, you can see where 
you know, people might want to debate these sorts of things, you know. And so it does get really tricky on, on, the, on this counting process, what's, what's included and what isn't included. Um, at, at what point do you become a male sex worker? I know this sounds very deep, and at what point do you stop being one? Um, you know, so, do you, do, you know, to, to be a male sex worker, do you have to be currently engaged in the industry or does it count if you were historically engaged? So there's all sorts of issues um, around the counting, you know, and, and, and also around male sex workers, uh, Christian intimated earlier too, um, there's a lot of stuff that goes on on um, quite variable sites, you know. So you might go into uh, something like um, Grinder, and you know you, you have a date. You're not expecting it to be a male sex work encounter as a client. You don't intend it to be, but somebody asks you for money, or you know, or maybe maybe it's somebody says, you know, um, let's go out for dinner, and then they hit you up for the bill. You know, like it, does that mean? And and you're willing to pay for it? Does that mean that you know you, you just had a romantic date, or have you just engaged in some kind of form of exchange that wasn't you know directly for money? You know, and and that's look, it's totally not uncommon. It could be that there's drugs involved in the exchange and all sorts of things. So it's it's really tricky. So um, where do you you know? So what was it you were hoping to achieve with this book when you three wrote it? Uh, yeah, well, we, we, we certainly weren't expecting to get rich off it or anything, despite the, the earlier book um, having done reasonably well. Um, look, one, one, of the, one of the, I guess, uh, the broader political um, aim with it was to uh, advocate around uh, decriminalisation of the sex industry, you know, and, um, and of course, as we were inferring before, I mean, it, it doesn't mean that, you know, you just decriminalise it for men and not women, you know, so we're talking about the sex industry more broadly, um, as I suggested uh, decriminalisation does seem to, you know, inverted commas, work. And, um, and, 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 and so one of the objectives of, of the book was to extend the work that we did earlier, include more uh, voices uh, within uh, the, 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 the sex industry in, in that book because we thought that was a shortcoming of the earlier book. We did have a few voices, but I think we've got, you know, um, a, a lot more in, in this volume. And... Uh, basically to pick up where we left off last time, and that was extending the story a little bit more. I mean, like in the last book, we had a couple of historical chapters. We started to touch on a little bit of the cultural stuff. But to be honest, uh, you know, and a little bit of the global stuff, but to be honest, a lot of it just hadn't been, wasn't that advanced. And then, wow, in the last five or six years, there's just been this outgrowth of um, really diverse research that, I, I, and I think as Christian said earlier, that... Um, was, was probably only made possible by the advent of things like PrEP and, and, and so on, where um, basically, you know, you could turn away from that epidemiological side of things and focus more on, on these other aspects of sex work. You know, I think, um, you know, one day when, when, when the sex industry is decriminalised all over the world, we'll be asking questions, you know, not about how many people use condoms, but it'll be about um, you know, how, how do you be a successful, uh, how do you run a successful escort business or how, how do you be, uh, you know, a successful escort or an ethical, how do you run an ethical business? So we'll be looking at all these other questions that we never asked before um, that looks more at the, if you like, the professionalisation of, of, of sex work um, and, 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 and processes of professionalisation. Um, so, so I think they'll be the, the sorts of questions that we'll be asking increasingly more in, into the future and looking at those questions in very diverse contexts. Will there be, you know, exploitation in a decriminalised um, sex work world? Yeah, there will be. And so we'll still have to account for that, um, you know, and, 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 and there'll be a lot of that going on just because there's, you know, a lot of, um, you know, power relationships exist everywhere, you know, between individuals, between different regions, 
um, and, and so there'll still be a lot of what we were aiming for with the book actually was the question. Yeah, what do what you, you hope to achieve with this volume? Yeah, so so look, I guess on 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 a, a wider level, we were advocating for decriminalisation, as we mentioned earlier. Um, we felt that the earlier book probably hadn't done that um, enough. Um, certainly, it was it was a highlight of the earlier book, but we wanted to be a little bit more explicit in this book. Um, once again, we wanted to capture. Um, the, the growth of research um, around male sex work that wasn't just that epidemiological work that's, you know, really expanded over the last um, decade and, and moved into areas such as the humanities. Um, we, we wanted to create um, what might be the, um, the initial sort of scaffolding for a more global understanding of male sex work, um, and, and, and we think the time's right for that. So I guess the book had some some sort of political aims. We certainly want to capture more sex worker voices and a, a greater diversity of voices in the in the in the male sex work uh, communities that that we spoke about earlier. So basically, it was a lot of it was to extend the work that we had started in in that first volume, um, and and to make it uh, more explicit than than what it had previously been. Um, where do you it's, see new avenues yeah. of research going? Sorry? Where do you see new avenues of research going? Yeah. Okay, so new avenues of research. Yeah, look, I, I, I'm, I'm hoping that um, that we can talk about and we can think about the sex industry in the future, um, not, not just in terms of, um, you know, head counting and, um, and measuring, you know, condom use and, um, and not look at it just as a health problem, but also look at um, this whole growth of professionalisation of, um, of, of the sex industry, um, the professionalisation of male sex work. Um, as, as we move to less regulated environments, I think the issue becomes, you know, just like any other business, you know, how... How do businesses professionalise? What makes for a more effective business? What makes for an ethical business? Um, will there still be instances of, uh, of, of exploitation involving male sex work in a decriminalised world? Yes, of course there will be. You know, um, power exists everywhere. It exists in relationships, um, you know, micro-relationships, you should be like, between individuals uh, and, and on, a, on a small, um, intimate level, but it also exists regionally, you know, where, you know, you've got things like sex tourism and other stuff. And, um, and you know, and in a globalising world, you know, we, we're very aware of those power relationships. Um, but that shouldn't prevent us from also uh, looking at the other side of the picture, and that is uh, the increasing professionalisation of, um, uh, I, I guess, uh, sex work. And, and what does that mean for both clients and sex workers themselves? And, and what does it mean um, in terms of how we regulate uh, uh, the sex industry or sex industries going forward? I mean, there's a whole conversation to be had about the impact of the sort of like neoliberalism on sex work, you know? I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely, my, there is. From my, no, own no, research, I, my own research is like based around sort of like this neoliberal form of sex work that couldn't exist without the internet and it's had a massive impact on the way sex work is conducted. So it'd be really interesting to sort of like, you know, sort of like, to explore fields like, you know, male sex work in a sort of neoliberal context. You know, the, the field is just so open. It's so open. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. No, no, no. And, and yeah. Yeah, your, your work is brilliant because it kind of 
it's it it opens up a lot of different areas to to discuss like you know the the social the the uh, image aspect you know the social media aspect the the history there's you know you've sort of set you've you set the reader on quite a few different potential paths of um of research if they were if they were thus in if they were if they were interested so who do you see as your audience who is this book written for yeah, um, good, good question. Unfortunately, it's probably mostly going to be academics who are going to read it. And, um, and um, yeah, look, you know, I, I, the, the book, uh, as much as we try, try, um, will not make everybody happy, you know. So there'll be, there'll be people who think that the industry should be more criminalised, more regulated, who aren't going to be happy with what we say, who perhaps think that males um, shouldn't be uh, much, much of a focus. Um, you know, because they make up, you know, well, typically about 10% of the overall global, you know, sort of sex worker community. Um, so, so the, you know, and there'll be sex workers themselves will be, will be unhappy with it and say, well, this book doesn't really speak to my experiences and, um, you know, my understanding of what I do. And, and look, you know, we're, we're, we're ready for that. We, we think it would have been impossible to, um, to write something without, um, you know, uh, putting some people offside, you know, we can't capture every aspect of, of the experience of the sex industry. So, um, but in terms of uh, who, who we think our audience will be at the end of the day, like I, I kind of hope it will be people who um, have have a particular view of the sex industry and um, and perhaps want to be challenged, you know, perhaps want to um, learn more about about the sex industry. So I think it's, it, it could be a useful text for people who uh, know, know relatively little about the sex industry, have a particular view of it, whether it be a sensationalised view, whether it be a, a biased view. And um, in that sense, you know, the book might be, you know, hopefully educational. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, we're academics, so, you know, it's an academic book. Um, there won't be a lot of titillation in it. I know sex sells, but um, as an academic, sex doesn't really sell that much, really. <laughs> it's, uh, it tends to be something that, um, oh, you know, my experience is that when you sort of write books in these areas or you have classes and that, um, if, it, if it's in the academic sphere, people tend to back away. So, um, you know, it, or, or it, it, doesn't, it doesn't sell in a big way, I guess. But I just wanted to touch on, um, you, you mentioned earlier about the neoliberal stuff too. I mean, and that's, that's another, you know, avenue for, for research as well. I mean, neoliberal means different things to different people. Um, but I've been uh, do, doing a little bit of work, research work recently with um, Jane Schooler uh, from over there in the, in the UK and we're trying to write an article up on, on neoliberalism and uh, the sex industry at the moment. And, and my take is that decriminalisation is actually quite neoliberal, you know, so we, we tend to think of all things neoliberal as being really bad, um, you know, and, or really negative. But um, I'm, I'm certainly an advocate for decriminalisation and I believe, you know, you could characterise it in many ways as being neoliberal and we're trying to sort of think through this proposition and um and you know why um the sex industry has been decriminalized in some places and not others um by looking at it through this kind of neoliberal framework so i mean that's that's another avenue for potential research going forward and i think you know we could we could look a lot more at that that question of the impacts of neoliberalism on the sex industry um and and i don't see neoliberalism as something that's essentially good or bad um so, so um, I think it can have different effects and different impacts on different industries. And in, in the case of decriminalising something, you know, maybe it's, it's, it's not a bad impact. I think it's quite 
quite interesting in terms of neoliberalism to see to see what has been legislated and what doesn't get legislated. So I'm really like, you know, like I've mentioned before, my study is webcamming. And even in places like America that are insane when it comes to the the, the um, legislation around sex work, webcamming is entirely legal. It's entirely legal. Even even yeah. the foster and sister thing doesn't touch it. You know, it doesn't yeah. touch it because, and I don't know if it's a case of like, you know, the radical feminist can take on a millionaire that owns, you know, sort of back page, but it's not up for a billionaire that owns a hosting site or the fact that every single transaction goes through the banking system virtually. But there's a whole different discussion about, you know, it's almost like at the moment, the criminalization of some forms of sex work distracts from the total lack of legislation about other forms of sex work. You know, and I think yeah, that's, that's, the in, that's the interesting sort of like conversation to have. And, uh, you know, I sort of like, you know, I wonder how that touches like male sex work. I mean, you know, my, my research around webcamming, like I think I, I interviewed 35 women. They were hooking up with their punters online. Yeah. So, they, they, you know, the webcam has become like the new street. And, you know, I wondered if that's the same with male sex work and whether, you, you know, you thought about investigating that avenue, you know. Where are the new yeah. streets? If we're not on the street, you know, you know, the street has a function, yeah. So where is the street now? You know, mm-hmm. and I, f- I find that quite interesting because I think, I think we need to sort of like have a think about sort of the legislation that we're talk that we talk about and that is most kind of uh, punitive and abolitionist tends to be attached to the types of sex work that are pre you know, sort of like, sort of, industri- they're, they're industrialized forms of sex work, yeah? So those are the ones that, that are um, sort of uh, legislated. And the, the things that aren't legislated is, you know, the, the stuff that's afterwards. It's almost like you can't turn around to, and sort of undo 160 years worth of feminist debate saying that, you know, all forms of sex work is exploitative, but, you know, just offside, just on this webcam, it's gonna be business as usual. And the bank yeah, go yeah. along with it. So, so yeah, I think it's this. So, you know, I was, I loved this book. I really enjoyed reading it. It kind of gave me loads to think about that whole Southern sort of aspect of it, made it so much more interesting. And I think you've done a really, really good job, you know. And I would, you know, I could see that being like a, a go to text, you know, in, in, in universities that are running sort of sex work. Um, uh, modules this is this is amazing it's like you know I gained so much from it and I've consistently gained a lot from you guys work which is why I wanted to talk to you about your work because I think you what you're doing is groundbreaking you're 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 sort of pushing the, the conversation away from victimization and looking at sexual commerce as a rational way of of generating an income you know and I you know I really appreciated the book and the work that you guys have done um so for the for the people listening, we did have some mad weather conditions here in 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 sunny sunny Margate in England. So we did drop out. We lost Christian, but we've still got John. And so John, tell it. You know what's in the name of the book and who's it published by? Yeah. Um, so 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 the book. Um, it's a it's a handbook. It's a Routledge handbook. Uh, Male sex work culture and society. Is, is, the, is the name of it. It is published by Routledge um, and, and by Routledge London, I, I might add, although they've got you know, outlets all over the world. Um, and, and just just um, mentioning the publisher, there's a bit of a backstory to it too. When we initially started this book, which was um, several years ago now, 
we were approached by a guy called Bill Cohen in New York, who was the publisher of the original volume. So Bill um, was a publisher of Hayworth Press, which was a, a, a gay press, and it was, um, you know, he, he'd sold it off and sort of retired, but he kept an imprint called Harrington Park Press. And um, he'd been a wonderful publisher. I mean, this guy was just a luminary in the industry and really pioneered queer publishing, you know, over, over decades, many decades, going back to the 1970s. And um, we'd loved working with Bill. Um, it had been great fun, the first book, working with him. He, he really went out of his way. He was quite a wealthy man, having sold off his earlier press. And, and this was like a bit of a hobby for him, you know. And a politi- it was, he was politically active around uh, these issues as well, you know. So it was something that he's very passionate about. And so, um, you know, just before the epidemic uh, began, we found out that Bill had actually passed away in New York. So this was tragic because we turned in the whole book and he'd, he'd begun copy editing, you know. So we were ready to publish about 18 months months ago bill died the press got sold and um the, you know, they basically ceased to function you know because it's not easy selling a you know boutique uh press that runs at a loss it's really there for political activism and sort of purposes and um and so so the press press closed shop and um we were suddenly thinking oh god do we go forward do we keep working on this what are the legal issues and so it was just a real nightmare um for a while and this is in the midst of lockdown and a pandemic but um Fortunately, uh, we we found we we thought we'll get we'll try Routledge and um, they had the handbook series and it was quite a big volume. We had forty chapters already, so we were just very fortunate to get this published at the end of the day. Um, and and it's amazing that um, you know going back that one year later after this happened, um, we're about to see it in print. So this has really been a saga, um, you know, because you can imagine all the contractual stuff and then going through with forty chapters, some of them with six authors, and it was it's it's been absolutely horrendous. So it was like doing the whole book over again so like I feel like I've done it twice um, as much as I love producing the book I have to say I'm going to be very happy to see it published and I'm very very relieved to see it published at last so it's been quite a saga for us so that's just a little bit of a backstory um, which may not be of that much interest to your listeners but you just reminded me of it with your last question oh no I'm sure they're interested so <laughs> so can you name like yourself and the other authors so people know know who, who yes. you are yep yeah, okay. So, um, yeah, look, I'm, I'm John Scott, so let's call me John Jeffrey Scott, which is my middle name added as well, because there is a John Scott over there in the uh, in the UK who's now retired, but lovely bloke, but a sociologist. And sometimes in the past I've gotten his emails and vice versa. Um, and then we've got Christian Grove, um, who's based in the US, um, City of New York uh, University. Um, and uh, finally we've got Victor Minichello, who is uh, he's now retired, but look, he's keeps so busy, and he's and he's got a, a few gigs with different universities, including Queensland University of Technology, where I work. Uh, we've all published um, previously around male sex work. Um, in fact, Victor um, goes back decades. He's really one of the pioneers of this area. So he um, he was publishing on 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 this area. Uh, and looking at the professionalisation of male sex work as far back as the late 1980s, you know, so uh, Victor's research really has got this magnificent pedigree uh, behind it as well, and I've been very fortunate to work with him, as I have with Christian um, in, in the past as well. So, yeah, so it's been been fun with those guys. Um, and who knows, we might have other projects. Hey, in 10 years' time, we might be looking at the next volume, you know, so and, and who knows where things are going to be at in 10 years' time in a, um, in a decriminalised world of... Um, um, sex work who knows what we're going to be talking about 
it can happen. It has happened before. You know, the majority of like history, we were not criminalized. So yeah. thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. This has been an excellent, excellent podcast. I've really enjoyed doing this with you. And it's a superb okay. book.